Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, what I wanted to do and hope to do this evening before we come to the Lord's table is to um, kind of introduce the theme that we'll be talking about um, on Sunday morning. And it's such a massive theme, and it is so rich that I feel like it would be unfair to begin uh, and unpack all that on a Sunday morning. Uh, and so I want to begin to do that this evening, and I'll kind of set us up for what we want to look at uh, on resurrection, resurrection morning here in a couple of days. So I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is our text, and I'm going to read 1 to 17. And we're, this is not a strict exposition, but it's going to frame out some points as we go through this evening. And I just want to uh, introduce it to us, remind ourselves of what Paul writes to the Roman church. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation. We are under obligation, excuse me, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now what I want to do this evening in the time that we have is to gaze intently both this evening and again on Sunday morning at the purchased privilege of our adoption in Christ. This, the privileges that we have as believers are massive. They are, um, they are beyond searching out. We'll literally spend all eternity plumbing the depths of the privileges and the knowledge of God uh, because he is infinite and, uh, and our creaturely capacity cannot fully comprehend everything there is to know about God. But just because we can't know everything there is to know about God, just because we can't plumb the depths of that, does not mean we can't know anything about God. And God has given us his word, and he's given us his spirit, 
so that we, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, might know the things freely given to us by God. And one of those things that God has freely given to us is this gracious privilege of adoption into his household. The triune God from eternity past, according to the kind intention of his will, Ephesians 1 verse 5 says, has predestined sinners to adoption as sons. And so God intends for us as his creatures then to know him, to delight in him, and to enjoy fellowship with him because in reality that is the marrow of life eternal. That is the heart of eternal life. John 17 verse 3 Jesus praying to his father said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, so knowing God in a true way, in a saving way, that, is, um, that isn't confined to an intellectual knowledge of God. That isn't just knowing facts about God. It involves an active, vibrant fellowship and a communion with God through Christ. And all the fellowship and all the privileges that we enjoy in this life and will enjoy for all eternity, all of those privileges flow downstream from the fountainhead of our adoption in Christ. 1 John 3, in verse 2, uh, John, the apostle, writes, Beloved, now we are children of God. This is the language of adoption that he's using. And our adoption is vitally connected, and this is why we're talking about this, it is vitally connected to the cross and the resurrection, as we saw just in the verses that we read, which we'll talk more about on Sunday morning. Now, anytime a person's adopted, there are basically five essential things that are required that have to happen for an adoption to be complete uh, in, in this life. First, there must be a family that a person rightfully has a claim upon that they're born into by birth, right? We understand that. Everyone's born into some earthly family, whatever that is. It may not be God's ideal design for a family, right? Uh, you may, may be a single mother or something like that, or you may not even know who your parents are if you were abandoned or orphaned, right? But you're born into some family that you have a claim to by, by right. That's the first thing that must be true whenever an adoption takes place. Second, there must be another family that a person doesn't have a claim upon that they are going to be grafted into. If a, if a man comes into a family by birth, he's obviously, we understand this, not adopted. If a woman is a distant relative and she's so far removed for all intents and purposes, she seems to have no claim on the family inheritance, but every other closer relative passes away and then that inheritance falls to her. She's also not adopted. In adoption, there must be another family that a person has no right to, no claim upon whatsoever that they are to be grafted into. Third, for whenever an adoption to be complete, there must be an authoritative legal transfer of that person from one family to another. You can't do this for yourself. We, we can't do this among ourselves. Uh, I've tried really hard to get adopted into the French's household to eat those wings and all that delicious grilled meat, but I have not made it happen yet. You need some authority, a magistrate, a judge, a person who is authorized to declare legally 
this transfer from your original family to this other new family. Fourth thing that's required whenever adoption takes place is the person is then set free from their obligations to their first family. They're released from those obligations. When someone's transferred from one family into their adoptive family, their responsibilities and duties to that first family are, are cut off, they're abrogated. Jesus said we can hardly serve two masters, so we can barely, how could we ever serve two, ma- two fathers? And fifth and finally, whenever an adoption takes place, that adopted person is invested with all the rights, privileges, and advantages along with a clear title to the inheritance of their new family, as if they were part of that family from birth. We understand that. All five of these things must be true for an adoption to be complete. You have to have a family that's yours by right, that you're born into, a family that's not yours by right, something that you're not entitled to, that you're grafted into. You have to have an authoritative transfer from one family to the next. You must be set free from the obligations to your first family and, as a result, are invested with new rights and new privileges and a new inheritance in their adoptive family. Now, we understand that on an earthly level, but all these essential components that are required that we just listed off for a person's adoption to be complete in an earthly household Those things are also found to be true in our adoption as believers into God's household. And what I want to do this evening is begin to unpack the first, these, these, maybe the first three, if we can, first three elements, and then we'll conclude on Sunday by looking at the last two. So I want to, I want us to just focus our hearts and minds on, on these realities as we think about our adoption in Christ. First, there must be a family that a person rightfully has a claim upon by birth. For you and for me and every human being that's ever lived, anyone who exists in this earth, there's a family that we have a rightful claim upon from birth, spiritually speaking, and that is the corrupted family of sin and Satan. We were ushered into this family by our first parents. We, we know the story well. We know the account that Moses records for us in Genesis chapter 3. The first man and the first woman sinned. They transgressed God's command not to eat of the fruit. And their sin and its physical and spiritual consequences and that sin nature that they um, brought into the world, that has been passed on from soul to soul, from generation to generation to this very day. We, we understand that. We, we experience that. Our gospel memory verse this week is Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all come into this world, Ephesians 2 said, dead in our transgressions and our trespasses and sins. And then he calls us sons of disobedience, Paul does in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And then he goes on to say in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. Those are members, we are members of that family whose future inheritance is none other than God's righteous wrath. That's the... uh, that's the direction of that. It's, a, it's an objective genitive. He's, we are the children who receive wrath. The family of Satan in the world, is, that's ours by natural right. We don't have to do anything to, to be a part of that. We just, just coming into this world, we are a part of that family. And all of that family is destined to inherit wrath, death, 
cursing, damnation. That is our inheritance as sons and daughters of our father, the devil. And there's, there's nothing we can do by our own exertion to change that. You can't escape that. Just as you can't free yourself from your earthly family by your own efforts, no child of the devil can free themselves from the corrupt family of sin and Satan. We, we, we get that. So if we go back to our text in Romans 8, Paul makes this clear in, in verse 5. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. To uh, borrow the words of the prophet Jeremiah, he asked the rhetorical question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The obvious answer is he cannot. Then you also, he says, can do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Of course, the answer is you cannot. These verses are all emphasizing and all making the same point. Those born of the family of Satan, they exhibit all the characteristics of that family, right? They, they kindle hostility toward God and his people. They attend to all the duties and responsibilities of that family, feeding the flesh, and lay claim to the inheritance of that family, namely death and wrath and hell. Unless we think that all only uh, wicked sinners in the world are those people, even outwardly religious and morally conservative people can be sons and daughters of disobedience and children of wrath. When Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, and they were pushing back against his preaching and teaching and even scheming to put him to death in the, in the background, he confronted them in John chapter 8, and, and they claimed to be Abraham's children, which was a way of saying that they were God's children. And Jesus responded by telling them exactly whose family they still belong to. He says, you are doing the deeds of your father. If, you were, if God were your father, you would love me, he said, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. This is, this is not a message that we love to hear about ourselves or about anyone, for that matter. It's not a message that the world embraces, and yet it's a true message. It's an accurate message and one that God has made plain to us in his word. But even if we're honest in our own conscience, we know, we know who we are, and we need to take that message to heart. So there's a natural family, spiritually speaking, that every person has a rightful claim to by birth. And of course, that is the family of Satan. Secondly, there must be another family, spiritually speaking, that a person doesn't have a claim upon which they will be grafted into to, to tease out this picture of adoption. And this, we know from the scriptures, is the family of heaven, God's household. God has a family and a household that his children have no right or claim to in and of themselves. We have no claim on God's household. This is the household that Christ is the head and Lord over. It, it is the family, Ephesians 1 verse 10 says, in whom the Father is summing up all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Now, Hebrews 12, verse 23 calls it the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's comprised, he says, the writer of Hebrews, of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In this heavenly household, there are sons and daughters we see from the book of Revelation from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And yet, none of them in and of themselves have any right or title to it or anything in that household. And when Adam and Eve sinned and God disciplined them, he drove them out of the garden to the east. That's significant. Genesis 3 tells us they went out to the east, and throughout the scriptures we see movement out to the east is a departure from God. And Genesis 3 verse 24 says he cut off all the ways that they could return Adam and Eve by stationing, God stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now that seems like kind of an insignificant detail, but it's, it's important. God was making it plain that mankind had lost any right to approach God on the basis of a family relationship. That the God, there was, no, there was no closeness, there was no peace, there was going to be no communion that had existed before the fall between God and man anymore. Man was now a slave of sin. And rather than relating to God with closeness and peace and fellowship, now man would have to relate to God at a distance with fear and trembling, like you see in Mount Sinai as the people hear God speak. Adam and all who are in Adam from Genesis 3 onward are strangers and aliens to God's heavenly household. They have no right to it or anything in it. This just underscores it. Those, I think who claim to have some kind of generic belief in God or cling to some kind of self-curated spirituality, they have zero claim to heaven, zero claim to eternal life. The Word makes it clear they have no right or title to God's household. The Lord will say to them on that final day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there's a, spiritually speaking, a family that we're born into, there's a, spiritually speaking, a family that we have no claim upon. Thirdly, there must be an authoritative legal transfer from one per family to the other. Our adoption, to be complete, there must be a, a, an authoritative transfer from one family to another. Our sin, of course, has placed us in the family of Satan, ensuring we have no claim on God's household whatsoever. So if any of us is ever going to be grafted into God's household, there must be a sovereign who has authority to transfer a child of Satan and declare them to be a child of God. And that is where, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross take center stage. We were all under a sentence of condemnation. All of us were under that condemnation. As we read in Isaiah, all of us have gone our own way. And in that condemnation, that was our right. That was our inheritance as sons and daughters of disobedience. The law of God stood over us and it exposed the depravity of our lives, the wickedness of our hearts, the rebellion and unrighteousness that was within. And God's law testified that we would never have a claim upon God's household, upon God's inheritance. We would forever be aliens and strangers without God and without hope in the world. And so what did God do? God sent his son in the flesh to 
to fulfill the law on our behalf and to make atonement for our sin. Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What we could not do, God did through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Christ has fulfilled the law, and because Christ has redeemed us from sin slavery, John 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right, the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So by believing on the Son, the sovereign of the universe declares us to be members of his heavenly household, affixing us with his seal, which we know to be, of course, the Holy Spirit. This is legal language that we see in John 1. This is legal language we see in the language of adoption. By an act of pure mercy and grace, God gave the child, you and I, the children of Satan, a new heart that looks to Christ, and in an instant, in an instant, God becomes our heavenly Father, and Christ becomes our elder brother, and all the saints become our fellow brethren in the family of God. And then we can say victoriously, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the, law of, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So for the believer, you're no longer a child of the devil. You're no longer destined for wrath. You're no longer, you're no longer under the sentence of judgment. Now you're a child of God not by right, certainly haven't earned it, we haven't, we're not entitled to it, and it's not by might, not by our effort, but by adoption. Romans 8 and verse 15, Jesus, uh, Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And those who are adopted are given a new name for our new family. They cast aside the name of their old family and they take to themselves the name of that new family that they are transferred into. And so John says in 1 John 3 and verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such, he says, we are. That, that bestowal, that granting, that declaration of adoption into the family of God to be called his children, that is an act of his grace. To be called by a new name signified a change of character. It signifies a change in ownership. And if you're in Christ tonight, you have a new name, the name of Christ embossed upon your heart, making clear that you belong to his household and that you are a member of his family. And so as we come to the end of this Passion Week and as we set our minds upon the cross this evening, we see the Father's love for lost sinners demonstrated through his Son. We were children of our father, the devil. Our only inheritance was wrath and death and hell and judgment. 
But as Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. No longer slaves of sin. No longer burdened with the spirit of slavery leading to fear, but rather receiving a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And that same spirit, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit dwells in your hearts through faith. And that same spirit being given as a pledge to us as a down payment of that future inheritance promised to all who have been adopted into God's family. And that, that is the hope that we have and that we will reflect upon more detail on Sunday morning. The rest will leave for that time. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer as we look to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your gracious adoptive love. Your love is demonstrated, of course, in sending your Son, but uh, we experience the fullness of that now in this life as we understand more detail what you have done for us. We thank you that you loved us with such a great love, that you laid down your life so that ours might be set free from the law of sin and death. And of course, we come to the Lord's table to be reminded of that and to reflect on what, you, what it cost you to purchase our eternal salvation. Lord, as we, as we come now to this, this, um, this table, may we come circumspectly. Um, this is, of course, we know for believers, this is, a, this is, a, this is no, no, no benefit to those without Christ. In fact, it even is uh, heaping judgment upon themselves, those who have not made a, a profession of faith and, and demonstrated that publicly, Lord, they are not to be a part of this. But, but if we have, may we come with open arms and with expectant hearts that we might feed and strengthen our hearts by faith, nourish our souls. We thank you, Lord, that you um, made this memorial table to remind us of these wonderful truths, uh, what it cost you. Father, as we, uh, as we come to the Lord's table, we, it's good for us to confess our sin. Lord, we have sung your praises and declared time and again that you're the great joy of our lives. And, uh, and that's our desire, but we have to confess that that's not the way we live all the time. John said, do not love the world or the things of the world. And Jesus himself said, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that you need will be added to you. We confess this evening, Lord, that instead of seeking your kingdom first, we've often sought our own provisions. We love what feels good, looks good, gives us status. We, we dishonored you by worrying about and trusting in things that we know that you'll supply each and every day. We've, uh, we, we want to acknowledge that we fail to uh, trust you and, and that we have looked to our own power we want to manipulate others instead of honoring and serving them. We want, to, we want our nation to be great, our state, our community, our family, ourselves. But the truth is each one of us wants to be great for our own purposes. We want to be like God. We confess, Lord, that 
We want to minimize all the risk we can, hold on to the good lives we have, attain heaven here on earth. Um, and we panic and we lash out when our earthly treasures are threatened, our comforts are disrupted, our aspirations are delayed. So we pray, Lord, you would have mercy on us. As we, as we silently, even now, confess our sin to you. Thank you for your grace, Lord, and your mercy in Christ. We ask that you would teach us, even through these simple elements, the bread and the cup, to walk in step with our Savior, who bought us and has brought us into fellowship with himself, the one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we live by every word that comes from your mouth, Lord, and worship and serve you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.